And we are in Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs 22. And we'll pick up in verse 16. Proverbs 22. We'll pick up in verse 16 and we'll read through the end of uh, the chapter. Proverbs 22, 16. It says, He who oppresses the poor to make more for himself or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your mind to my knowledge. For it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, that they may be ready on your lips so that your trust may be in the Lord. I have taught you today, even you. Have I not written to you excellent things of counsel and knowledge to make you know the certainty of the words of truth that you may correctly answer him who sent you? Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. Do not associate with a man given to anger, or go with a hot-tempered man, or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. Do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debt. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take your bed from under you? Do not move the ancient boundary which your fathers have set. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray today, Lord, that you might incline our ears, Lord, to hear the words of the wise. Lord, that you might cause our minds to apply themselves, Lord, to the knowledge and understanding, Lord, these excellent things written in your word of counsel and of knowledge. Lord, we pray that you would make certain to us, Lord, the words of truth. Lord, that we might know how to correctly think and answer, Lord, to speak in this present age. Lord, we, we need wisdom. Lord, we need it more than our daily bread. Lord, it is to be more valuable to us than even gold or silver. And Lord, we confess that we are bereft of any wisdom on our own. If we are going to be wise, Lord, you must give it to us. And so we pray, Lord, that you might impart your wisdom, Lord, into our hearts and into our minds. So, Lord, teach us today as we open up the words of life. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Proverbs 22, picking up in verse 16. There it says, He who oppresses the poor to make more for himself or who gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Here, there are uh, two aspects or two sides of this uh, outlook on life, right? Here, the person, their great desire is for their own wealth, their own prosperity, uh, to build up their own riches. And they're doing this in two ways, both in the way that they respond and relate to the poor and in the way that they respond and relate to the rich. To the poor, they oppress them to make more for themselves, right? They see the poor as an easy target or an easy object. Though poor people have very little, yet the very little that they have is easy to take because they're not able to defend themselves. They don't have access to lawyers and to those things, those means that a rich man might have by which he takes advantage of the law in order to manipulate it and oppress and uh, take away from to loot the poor. So he oppresses the poor in order to enrich himself, or there are those who give to the rich. 
they bribe the rich, they flatter the rich, you know, they give to them money and, and these things so that they will have favors from them, so that it will be an advantage in their own way. In both cases, all the person is, is, uh, cares about or is concerned for is his own standing, right? He's a self-serving, self-centered man who is only concerned with building up uh, his own estate, whatever profits him and is an advantage to him. Well, a man who lives in such a self-centered way will ultimately come to poverty. He will arrive at a poor state. That can happen in this life, but certainly it will happen in the life to come. Because is not the lake of fire eternal poverty, right? A deprivation of every good thing, of every comfort and joy that a person could ever have. This is what they are. They are in a, a state of perpetual ruin and poverty and in a place of suffering and of torment. Wasn't that the case with the rich man of the rich man in Lazarus? He had his good things in this life. In this life, he had wealth. He had all that it could buy, all the comforts and pleasures of life. But in the life to come, all those things were taken away from him. He enjoyed his good things in this life, but in the life to come, he had nothing but bad, nothing but evil. And this is what will happen to all of those who practice this type of self-centered life, who use others to enrich themselves by oppressing the poor, by flattering the rich. Either way, you're going to come to poverty because it shows that they have set their heart on the uncertainty of riches. All they're caring about and concerned with is how to build up and amass a fortune for themselves in this present life. But life is more than the abundance of one's possession. This is how it is with everyone who is not rich towards God. A man may be rich in this world, but if he's not rich towards God, then ultimately he will come to poverty. What is true of him spiritually will be manifested in both his physical and his spiritual condition in the life to come, in that God will give him over to his devices. Verse 17. 17 to 21 are a section to be taken together. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise, and apply your mind, your mind to my knowledge. For it will be pleasant if you keep them with you, that they may be ready on your lips, so that your trust may be in the Lord. I have taught you today, even you. Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge to make you know the certainty of the words of truth, that you may correctly answer him who sent you? Here he begins by telling him to incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your mind to my knowledge. This entails that there is a desire to gain this wisdom and this understanding. Right? The one who does not care to gain the wisdom of God is not going to come and hear the word of God. He's not going to apply his mind to the word of God and to the wisdom that is found in God's word. So he's inviting them, he's calling them to come and incline the ear, to apply the mind. This is what God is doing. Wisdom is crying aloud in the streets, saying to the naive one, saying to the simple one, to come in here and gain wisdom and gain understanding. This is the word that goes out into the world. It goes out to many, but very, very few will heed to this call because most people, they don't care about it. They're not concerned with gaining the wisdom of God that makes one wise into salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. They're more concerned with worldly wisdom. The worldly wisdom that produces honor and glory and riches in this present life, but they're not concerned about that wisdom and knowledge that will lead to honor and glory and riches in the life to come. 
But we must seek this knowledge. We must seek this wisdom, true wisdom that is found in the word of God by inclining our ears to hear the words of the wise. And where are the words of the wise found? In the word of God, the wise words of the prophets and the apostles who were led by the spirit of wisdom, the very spirit of Christ within them leading to to these things. But it's not enough that we hear these things. We also must apply the mind to them. We must hear them with the purpose of incorporating them into our faith and into our practice. Not one who merely hears the word and deceives himself, but one who hears the word with the goal and desire to obey the word. This is the wise man, the one who builds his house on the rock and not on the sand. The one who hears the words of God and then obeys the word of God by incorporating this word into his faith and into his practice. This is the way that we should come when we come to hear the word of God, expecting to hear God speak to us with the purpose of obeying what God commands us by doing what he tells us to do. This is how we ought to be. Verse 18, the blessing. It will be pleasant if you keep them within you that they may be ready on your lips. There is a blessing with hiding the word of God into the heart, keeping it within us so that it is ready on our lips. As it says in Psalm 119, verse 11, your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. He doesn't want to sin against God. And isn't that the pleasant path? Isn't that the path of blessing? The pathway of obedience, of righteousness, of godliness. This is where the life of blessing is found. Well, he knows that if he wants to obey God, do his will, overcome sin, then he needs to keep the wisdom of God within him, right? It needs to be written on his heart and inscribed there in his mind so that it's ready on his lips. He has a ready response to everything that rises up into opposition to the word of God, that tempts him or lures him to uh, deviate and to stray from the path or to violate one of God's precepts or commands. This is pleasant. It's pleasant to not have our conscience tormented by the knowledge of our sin, to not be under the conviction in that way. That is a happy and blessed life, to not have that. Well, that will not happen without having the word of God within us and ready on our lips. Verse 19, so that your trust may be in the Lord. I have taught you today, even you. Ultimately, what we're dealing with when we come to the word of God, it's a matter of trust. Who do we trust? Who is our authority? Who do we listen to whenever we're seeking to make decisions, uh, uh, when we are trying to formulate our values, how we're going to live, what we're going to believe? Many people, they trust in various sources, various sources of authority, experts in this or that, PhDs in this or that, this guru, this wise man, this religion, this philosophy. They follow these types of things. But the Bible is given to us to tell us the words of God, God's judgments on all of these topics that the Bible addresses and covers. Most importantly, teaching us about who God is, the nature of God, right? And how it is that man can be reconciled to him through the death of his son. And then how it is that we should believe and put our trust in Christ and repent of sin and live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. The Bible is teaching us all of these things and it is giving us God's judgment, his declaration concerning all of these things. 
and we need to trust God. We need to trust that what God says about whatever topic the Bible addresses, that that is the definitive, authoritative, final word on every matter. And when someone rises up to contradict what the word of God says, if they are promoting some belief or ideal that is contrary to the word of God, then we need to trust God and we need to reject what man says. If they're promoting some virtue or some way of life that is contradictory to what is clearly taught in the Bible, then we need to trust God in what God says and not listen to the ideas of men. This is what got us into the mess that we're in in the first place. Adam and Eve did not trust God. They did not trust and believe the declaration, the judgment of God concerning this tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the dangers that would come about if they ate of the fruit of that tree. Instead of trusting God in his word, they trusted the lies. They believed the lies of the devil. And so they transgressed the commandment and fell and plunged the whole human race into sin. Well, the life of the Christian, which is a renewed life, a renovated life, then is a life of trusting in God, believing his word against everything that rises up in opposition against it. And there are many things today that will rise up in opposition to the word of God. How it is that we are to, what we are to believe, everyone's telling us what to believe, and how we are supposed to live. What lifestyles are good and wholesome and right. Even saying that, you know, all sorts of, of deviancies that the Bible declares to be perversions, that these are good and right and wholesome and find ways for people to live. Men with men, women with women, men with trees, whatever, all sorts of, of crazy things. But where do we need to go as our source of authority? We must go to the Word of God. And the Bible is given to us, is giving to us the very mind of God on everything that we need to know for life and salvation. There are some things that belong only to the Lord, the secret things. But the things revealed belong to who? To us and to our children, so that we may know the will of God. Well, what we're reading in Proverbs 22 and everything that we read in the Bible, like we read today from Hebrews 6, 19, and 20, those are not secret things. Those are revealed things written in the Word of God so that we might know the will of God and that we might trust God, then we need to be taught these things. The Bible is teaching us to trust in the Lord and to trust His judgments on all things. Verse 20. Verse 20. Have I not written to you excellent things of counsel and knowledge? The Bible is teaching us excellent things. Excellent things. We're not dealing with the scum of the earth, with refuse, with things that are trashy and of, of ill repute. The Bible is dealing with wholesome, excellent, holy things. The excellency of the Bible is one of the arguments, one of the proofs of the divinity of the Bible. The words found in the Bible are so holy and wholesome that they have a divine stamp of approval on them. There is no way that any sinful man could ever produce through his own mind and wisdom what is found in the Word of God. And when you compare the content of the Bible to other religious books, whether that be the Quran, the Book of Mormon, the Jehovah's Witness pamphlet, whatever they have, uh, the writings of Confucius or Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, it's trash. All of that is trash and worthless in comparison to the Bible. It's like a steak versus a hot dog. You, there's, well, not that they're in a place for hot dog. We need to go even descend further. I don't know. It's like a steak versus trash is what it is. There's no comparison, right, between these things. 
One is sublime. One is divine. One is excellent in all that it is speaking. It is holy. It is righteous. It is good. It is true. It has the marks of God upon it. And the other is from man. And it is worthless and of no account at all. And this is what the Bible is giving us. Excellent things. Why would we forsake the spring of living water and go dig cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. And yet, in Jeremiah 2, that's exactly what the people are doing. They reject the excellent things, the excellent truth found in the Word of God, and they go and they latched on to human wisdom, to the wisdom and the philosophies of demons and of sinful and wicked men. And why is it that men will exchange the one for the other? What is excellent for what is of no value at all? Because... Demons and wicked men will allow us to live in sin, to live in sin without any need to repent. But the Bible teaches us a better way. That is repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible contains excellent things, things that will make us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What better thing could we be taught? Is there anything more important for us to know and to value then how our immortal soul can be saved, how our sins can be forgiven so that we don't go to the lake of fire and be tormented for all eternity, how we can be reconciled to God. And what is the only book in all of the world that provides such wisdom and understanding, such excellent things? Only the word of God, only the word of God. This is why we should come expectantly, desiring to hear so that we can hear counsel and knowledge and wisdom of the excellent things written in the word of God. And they're written to you. These things are not written for God. God already knows. He knows all of this. He has revealed these things for us, for our benefit, for our children. So then, if we neglect them, whose fault is it? It's our own fault, right? Why would we neglect these excellent things given to us by God? Verse 21. To make you know the certainty of the words of truth, that you may correctly answer him, who sent you? Here, the Bible is making us know certainty of the words of truth. The Bible is repeating and confirming these things over and over and over again so that we would have certainty and confidence in what the Word of God is teaching. Because the Word of God is telling us a certain way that we ought to live. It is telling us what we ought to believe. It is telling us what is necessary for a man to do in order for him to be saved. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if repentance and faith will not result in salvation, then what good is the Bible? Because that's what it's telling us. If Jesus Christ cannot save us from our sins, then why should we put our faith in him? If there is no eternal life waiting for the people of God, then why would we believe these things? We need certainty in what the Bible is teaching us so that we will have confidence and we'll have assurance that we who have put our hope in Jesus, we who have fled to him for refuge, that we will be saved on the day of Christ. And the Bible gives us certainty because it's coming to us from the God, according to Hebrews chapter 6, who cannot lie. We have many promises in the Bible. Many of those promises, they're still waiting for their fulfillment. But do we not have myriad upon myriads of promises that God made to people that he actually fulfilled and brought about, confirmed over and over and over and over again? And how many of those promises fell to the ground? How many did God fail to bring about? None. He's batting a thousand perfectly. 
So is it right for us to anticipate that if God has been faithful up to this point in everything that needed to be accomplished, that he will continue to be faithful into the future and those things that are still waiting to be accomplished, that in due time God will give those things to us as well? Absolutely. He has a perfect track record. And then, as we've been studying in Hebrews chapter 6, what did God connect to his promise, to his word? His own oath. He swore. He put himself under an oath in order to confirm more to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. And we have these things recorded for us in the Bible over and over and over again so that we would know it for certain, for certain. For example, we've talked much about Abraham. Abraham being the father of many nations, right? I will surely bless you and I will multiply you. Well, we have that promise confirmed in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 22. We see the fulfillment of what happened with Isaac and Jacob and then Isaac and then Jacob and then Jacob's sons. We see that Christ did indeed come into the world as was promised to Abraham. Then the apostle is unfolding these truths in Romans chapter 4, also in Galatians chapter 3. We've been reading about it in Hebrews chapter 6. It's all over the Bible, confirming it again and again and again and again so that we have certainty that when we go to the Bible and when we see it say that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved that we can have certainty and confidence that if we do such things, we shall indeed receive the promise that God has sworn and that God will give to us. And then also, it gives us the ability to correctly answer him who sent you. When we have this wisdom stored up within our heart and in our mind, then we are able to give an answer to everyone who asks us for the reason for the hope that is in us. We are able to answer whatever skeptic rises or whatever sincere, honest question that one might have about faith in Christ. We always know how to deal with whatever arises in opposition to our faith. This is as we studied in Hebrews chapter 5, that we might have the ability to discern between good and evil. Good and evil. Discernment between these things comes from a constant handling of the word of God. Being familiar with the word of righteousness will give us the ability to distinguish good from evil and be able to speak gracious words, good words, truthful words in every situation. Verse 22. 22 and 23 we'll take together. Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. Do not rob the poor because he is poor. There are people, again, the poor man has very little resources. He has very little. And for that reason, he is an object of um, contempt and also one who could be easily looted and plundered. And even though he's poor, you shouldn't rob him. And there are some people who are so malicious and mean that when they see someone in a poor, afflicted state, instead of having compassion for them, which should be true of our humanity. Yet because our humanity has been so marred by sin and some people are so depraved, when they see a poor man, what do they do? Instead of helping them, they spit on them or they kick them or they want to oppress them. Not for any benefit that they get, but just out of malice and evil, right? There are people who are like that. Well, the Bible's telling us that we shouldn't do that. We should not rob the poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. Robbing the poor is an egregious form of theft, right? Theft of all sorts is evil and sinful. But when you rob a rich man and you take some of his possessions, 
he still has other possessions by which to sustain his own life and the life of his family. That is a great sin. It is an evil and we shouldn't do it. But when you rob a poor man, you deprive him of whatever is necessary for the maintaining of his life. You are sentencing him to starvation. You are murdering him by depriving him of whatever resource he has for the maintaining of his own life and that of his family. And then crushing the afflicted at the gate. At the gate, the gate of the city, Ruth chapter 4 verse 1. This is where Boaz went in order to make this transaction Right, concerning taking Ruth to be his wife and requiring this piece of land uh, under the name of her deceased husband. The gate then is the place where justice is dispensed and dispersed there in the town or in the village. Well, crushing the afflicted at the gate. The afflicted should go to the gate to be relieved of their affliction. Whatever, whoever is tormenting them, whoever is persecuting them, whatever uh, person they have coming and oppressing them in this way, they ought to be able to go to the gate and find someone there to be an advocate and to stand for them and to deliver them from the one who is oppressing them. Like the widow, the widow, the persistent widow who went to the unjust judge. She went to him for justice because she had an oppressor who was tormenting her. And though that judge was unjust, he ultimately gave her justice because she consistently pled with him. Well, this ought to be what we do, not in an unjust way, not just to get the person to shut up, but we ought to desire justice and righteousness and to deliver those who are afflicted by such oppressors. And when they come seeking deliverance from such things, we should not turn and crush them, but rather seek to deliver them in these cases. The reason why we want to side with the poor and the afflicted, and again, this is assuming that the poor and afflicted, that they are righteous and that they have a just cause, that they have a just cause. Because the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. God will ultimately right every wrong. Amen. And if you rob the poor, then God sees that, and you may get away with it in this life, but ultimately you will stand before God on the day of judgment, and he will take your life. You rob from him, so God will rob your life. He will take it away from you in the day of judgment. Psalm 72. <clears throat> Psalm 72, verse 4. It says, May he vindicate the afflicted of the people. Save the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Here the psalmist is praying for God to deliver, vindicate the afflicted, save the children, crush the oppressor. Right? God will do that in due time. He will deliver his people from all of their oppressors. So we should not join in with those who crush the afflicted, but rather deliver them. Instead of looting the poor, robbing the poor, we ought to be compassionate to him and give to him, right? Relieve him of his distress and his poverty and be moved with compassion toward them. 24 and 25. Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man. 
right? A man given to anger, a hot-tempered man, right? This is one who has no control over his passions. If someone offends him, if someone uh, says something to him that he doesn't like, if he's driving down the road and someone cuts him off, his anger wells up within him to such a degree, his temper rises, and then he begins to act irrationally, erratically, in this very uh, aggressive way toward the one who has offended him. Well, if you're associating with him, if you're spending time with him, and his temper wells up, and he begins to pop off and to scream and curse and rant and rave at this person or that person, well, maybe that person turns around and starts beating him, giving him a good thrashing. And if you're with him, what might happen to you? He's going to suck you in as well, and you might get thrashed too. Or maybe this person pulls a gun out and starts shooting people. Or if you're riding with him and he's driving down the road and he starts road raging against people, well, you never know how that's going to end. So if you know that this person is given to anger and is a hot-tempered man, then don't associate with him. Don't go places with him. Don't be around him or he's going to drag you into all of these brawls, all of these conflicts, all the contention that is a result of his anger and his lack of self-control. This is why in Psalm chapter 1, Psalm 1, it talks about the blessing of the one who does not associate with such men in a more general way. Here it's dealing with a specific vice or a specific sin. In Psalm 1, it's dealing with it in a more general way. Psalm 1, 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. That is the life of blessing, to not associate with those people, to not have them as our close friends, our close associates, to spend time with them in this way to where their uh, anger and their hot temper is going to get us into big trouble as well. But also there's another reason. If you are with him, you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 11. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. When you spend time with bad company, and is a man given to anger and hot-tempered, is that bad company? Yeah, absolutely, right? He's a, he is bad company, and his bad company is going to corrupt your, your good morals. You're going to become like him. You're going to become angry. You're going to become bitter. You're going to become hostile. You're going to constantly be wanting to fight and bicker and brawl with people as well. And then you'll be drug into these needless controversies, conflict, contentions all the time, biting and devouring one another because you are becoming like him. We're not supposed to be like him. We're supposed to be like Christ, be conformed to the image of Christ. And Christ is not angry and hot-tempered in this way, not out of control. Yes, Christ has anger against sin, but it's not out of control. He, his is always under control. But when Christ was on earth in the way that he dealt with men, right? generally speaking, he was mild, he was meek, he was lowly, he did not cry aloud in the street, the bruised reed he did not break, the dimly burning wick he did not extinguish. He was very gentle and kind and meek and mild in the way that he dealt with with men, not hot-tempered and not angry. Well, we want to be like Christ, so we need to emulate him and then be with those who are like this. He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. Instead of being with the angry man, we should seek those who are meek and mild, who are gentle, who are kind, that their kindness and gentleness and compassion 
will rub off on us. And isn't it true that many times the most godly people that we know or that we've known of are typically the most gentle, mild, they're very compassionate, they're very loving in the way that they treat other people. Well, that's the way that we should aspire and what we should desire to be like. And there are people who are themselves naturally more gentle and mild and quiet who will become harsh and bitter because of the influence of hot, angry people like this. So we must be very careful, not only in regards to this sin, but in any sin. If someone is given to some vice that is contrary to the word of God and to the righteousness of God, then we should not have them as our close friends and associates, right? Not that we can never have any contact with unbelievers. That's impossible. We'd have to go out of the world. But we don't have to be around them so that they're influencing us in this way. Verse 26, do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take your bed from under you? Don't be with those who give pledges and who are guarantors for debt. Here, another group of people that we ought to avoid, that we should not associate with, that we should not have close companionship with, and that is the ones who are always giving themselves in pledges and in guarantee for debts, right? Which is, we live in a debtor society, right, in America. It is a debtor society. Most people are living off of debt, and that's not a way that we should live. This is not the way the Christian should live. We should do whatever we can to be free from debt, to be out of debt, because the borrower becomes a slave to the lender. And if we are given to debts and pledges, and we don't have anything to pay, what's going to happen? They're going to take whatever we have. Here, they're going to take your bed from under you. or They'll take your house from you. They'll take your car from you. Right? And there are even examples in the Bible where they took their children from them in order to pay for their debts. So when we get overloaded with debt in this way, then it can be the loss of those things that are essential to our comfort and enjoyment in life. If you don't have a bed, you're going to be sleeping on the ground. It's cold. It's hard. It's miserable down there, right? A bed is so soft and cushy, and that's where you want to sleep, not on the ground that's cold and hard. Well, this person, he lost his bed because he made a pledge, and he put up his bed as a surety for his pledge, but then he couldn't pay it, and out goes his bed. Now he doesn't have anything to sleep on. Verse 28. Also, he would also, his wife would be mad at him too, because the bed's gone, right? Now she has to sleep on the floor as well. It's going to be misery the whole way around for everyone. His back's going to hurt, and then she's going to be griping at him. 28. Do not move the ancient boundary which your fathers have set. Do not remove the ancient boundary. The ancient boundary being the way that they surveyed the land, the way that they set these boundaries to divide one piece of property to another piece of property, right? This is what these boundaries were there for, in order to delineate what land belonged to what tribe, and then within that tribe, what land belonged to this family, what land belonged to another family. This is how they established this. They had the ancient boundaries by which they established these things. It would be similar to a corner post or something by which you distinguish your property begins here and your neighbor's property begins there. Well, if you move the boundary marker 10 foot over or 100 foot over, then you're getting part of your neighbor's land. You're defrauding them 
by giving the impression that this is the boundary line, when in reality, the boundary line is over here and you're getting access and use to your neighbor's land. Is that loving your neighbor as yourself? Does anyone want their neighbor moving the boundaries against them so that your neighbor is getting more of your land? No, of course not. And this was their inheritance, right? Things, land, property that was in their family for generation after generation after generation. You're depriving a man not only of his own livelihood, but also of his inheritance and of his heritage. The heritage he received from his fathers, and then the inheritance he will leave to his own sons, to his own children. And so it was an evil thing for someone to defraud in that way. And so we should not do that. But rather, the Bible teaches the right to personal property, that what is yours is yours and what is mine is mine. And you don't have a right to take what is mine and I don't have a right to take what is yours. Now, you have an obligation to use your resources before God to be a benefit to your neighbor. And I have an obligation to use the resources God has given me to serve and to love you. But you can't come and demand those things from me and I can't come and demand them of you and take them and seize them by force. And we shouldn't defraud one another in this way, but rather we should be honest in our dealings, right? In the way that we deal and we should practice the rule to love your neighbor as yourself, to do to others as you would have them to do to you. Deuteronomy chapter 19 And this type of stuff still happens today. You know, people will tear a fence down between their property and, and they'll just kind of scoot it over a little bit, you know, and they get a, another little sliver of land there that doesn't really belong to them. The fence is not in the right place. So if you ever buy property, make sure you get a surveyor to come out. Make sure you get a good survey on it. Deuteronomy 19.14. You shall not move your neighbor's boundary mark, which the ancestors have set, in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God gives you to possess. So there, very clearly, he tells them, do not remove these boundary markers. Leave them there. They are the ancient boundaries. They are set by the fathers under the rule and leadership of Joshua. Whenever the land was distributed amongst the tribes, they set these boundaries when they gave each man his allotment, and those boundaries are fixed, and they need to remain in such a way. Then verse 29, do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. A man skilled in his work, a man who is excellent, who is a master at whatever trade it is that he sets himself to, even though it may be a common, he may be a common man. He may be a, someone who is a blacksmith, a carpenter, a bronze worker, a metal worker in some way. Right? And we would think, well, this is just a common man. He's just a laborer. Right? He's not, he doesn't have a white-collar job. He just works with his hands. He does these kinds of things. But even a man who is skilled in his work, in whatever it is that he does, ultimately his reputation will go out. It will go before him, and he will stand before kings. He won't stand before obscure men. When the king needs someone to do work for him. And the king is not a man who is able to do everything for himself. When he needs a house built and he hears that there is a man who is a very skilled carpenter who is not as educated as him. He does not have as much money as him. He's not of noble class as he is, but he needs his house to be built and he doesn't want his house built by some stooge, right? Someone who isn't able to build it in a proper way. And there is this man who is a master 
carpenter, craftsman in what he does. He is skilled in his labor. Who is the king going to get to build his house? He's going to go get that man. And he's going to stand before kings. Obscure men are not going, he's not going to be before the obscure, but rather amongst the noble, amongst the important, amongst the wealthy. They will call for this man's services because he is so skilled at what he does. And this is a blessing and honor that God gives even to the skilled worker. Right? If they excel in their skill, then people take notice of this, their reputation goes out, and then everyone wants them to come and to do their work. Even the rich will come and appeal to them to come and work for them. We remember that Joseph, Joseph in Genesis 37 to 50, was very skilled at everything that he did. And did he maintain an obscure standing in Egypt? No, he stood before the king, and he actually became the second in command in all of Egypt. And even the Pharaoh said, who else can we find who's like this guy, right? who has the spirit of God within him, who has such wisdom? So he was, his reputation, right? his wisdom, his skill in handling and discerning and knowing how to deal with policy and how to manage and do the things that needed to be done in order to preserve that land during the seven years of famine, this is what... Uh, commended him to the king, and by which he rose from obscurity to this place of prominence. Also in 1 Kings chapter 7, whenever Solomon was building the temple and building his house, there he called for a man named Hiram of Tyre, who was very skilled at bronze work. And they needed a lot of bronze work to be done in the building of the temple, and he came and did all of that. He was a man who was just a, a laborer, a man who worked with his own hands, And yet he came and stood before Solomon. And Solomon told him all that was in his heart. And then Hiram was the one that went and actually brought these things about. So this is the way that we ought to be, right? We ought to be in in our conduct. Be as proficient, as skilled, as excellent as we can be in whatever our hands find to do. And there is this notion, this idea that came out of the Reformation, often called the Puritan work ethic that whatever we find to do, whatever our calling is in this world, and all of us have a calling, certainly my calling is unique in that it is to handle the things of God and to teach and preach the word of God, but everyone has a calling. Tanner's calling is to drive a truck for FedEx. Mr. Chandler's calling was heat and air. Denny does something with computers. Uh, Mike also does something with computers, I think, or phones. And, uh, and then Casey is working on electric charging stations. And everyone has a calling. And then all the ladies have callings as well. Well, whatever that calling is that God gives to us, what should we desire to do? To be excellent. Excellent in whatever we do. Whatever our hands find to do, do it with all our might. As working for the Lord, not for men. And even if it is an obscure job, even if it is just a common job, a common laborer, we will gain a reputation amongst those that we are with and amongst those that we work for. And many times these people will rise up to higher and higher and higher positions because they are so good at what they do. They are very skilled. Some of that skill is natural, right? Some people have more of a proclivity and natural ability and aptitude in one area or another. But many times, those skills are learned. And as we apply ourselves and are diligent in what we do, we get better, more proficient in those types of things. And for sure, 
we ought to work harder than anyone else, right? Christians, the Christians in the company should be the hardest working, the most honest, the most dependable, the most loyal of the whole group. And if we behave in such way, then we will rise from obscurity into greater positions of honor, greater responsibilities within the company, and even may rise up before kings and those who are not obscure at all. So let us then strive uh, to live in such a way, to be diligent and to work and, and to be excellent in everything that we do. And if we ought to do that in terms of our natural calling in this present world, and how much more in terms of our spiritual calling, right? That we ought to desire to be excellent in the things of God, in the practice of righteousness, in our faith, in our faithfulness to the Lord, to work for the Lord uh, in everything that we do, not only in our natural calling, but also in the way that we worship and serve him. Well, we'll stop there for today, and we'll pick up next time in chapter 23. But with that, we'll pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Also, just to give you a quick update, Paul's mother, Margaret, Margaret Hood, uh, she is out of the hospital, and she's in a rehab center, Mercy Rehabilitation Center, and uh, she's doing well. Denny, you, you went and saw her Friday night, you and Laurie did, and she was doing well. So she's in good spirits. She's, she's got a better mind than you, right, Denny? Is that what you said? Yeah, Denny said she's better mind than him. So that's not hard to imagine. No, that's right, no. So she's very sharp uh, still for, you know, for her age. She's very sharp and quick and still has a great memory and uh, is in good spirits. They replaced the hip, and now she's there in the rehab and will be there for uh, at least three weeks, probably a little bit longer than that. Uh, but please keep praying for, for her and for Paul and for Melvin as well, uh, just that God will be with them and watch over them. Okay, let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, we pray that these truths that we have heard today, Lord, that we have read from your word, Lord, the wisdom, the counsel, the knowledge, Lord, the understanding that you have given to us. Lord, we see that Lord, these are excellent things, Lord, that are laid out for us in your word. We pray that we would take these things to heart, Lord, that we would not only hear them and listen, but Lord, that we would apply our mind to understand such things, and Lord, that we would seek to incorporate every word, Lord, into our faith and into our practice. Lord, if we are deficient in any area, we pray, Lord, that you might reveal that to us, Lord, that you might convict us and bring us to repentance, and that we might amend our ways. Lord, be with us this week as we go out, Lord, into this world and into our callings. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be diligent and faithful to you. Lord, may we work in such a way as working for you and not for men. Lord, in order to please you, and we pray, Lord, that we might be skilled and excellent in everything that our hands undertake. So, Lord, may we be faithful and diligent, and Lord, we pray that that may commend us to our fellow man. And Lord, give us opportunities to speak a good word, Lord, concerning you, concerning the way of truth and righteousness, Lord, that we might have opportunities, Lord, to preach the gospel and to, uh, Lord, share this message of hope to those who are perishing. Lord, give us safety as we travel home today, and we pray that you bless us the remainder of this Lord's Day, and Lord, that you bring us back together again safely on Wednesday. Father, as well, we pray today even for uh, Miss Margaret. Lord, we are grateful that the surgery went well. 
that she is now uh, recovering in the rehabilitation center. And Lord, we pray that you give her a very speedy recovery and that there'd be no complications, uh, Lord, but that she might uh, be back to full health and back home with uh, Paul and with uh, Melvin. Lord, as well, I ask that you would especially be with Paul, Lord, and give him uh, patience and grace and love as he is caring for his parents, Lord, in their, uh, in their old age. Lord, may he prove himself, Lord, to be your disciple by the love that he has for his father and mother. And Lord, help him to be diligent and faithful to care for them and to provide for them, Lord, whatever it is that they need. So Lord, be with him and bless him and bless them as well. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.